This week, two things, well, a number of things have happened, obviously, but one of the things that happened is that Richard Breyer's died. Yeah, no, I'm sorry to break it so harshly if, <laughs> if you hadn't heard that. Um, but Richard Breyer's died, and for a whole generation of us who are my age, so relatively young, um, we are the generation who grew up watching and being influenced by... No idea. No idea what you're talking about. Influenced by that TV program, The Good Life. Yeah? Remember it? It's, it's, you saw the repeat on gold. Um, a generation of us. And simple, silly little program. But actually, something in it um, attracted us. It was made in the sort of late 70s. A time when people were actually trying to experiment with this. What attracted us? Well, it was like this idea that you could drop out of the rat race, you could look after yourself, you could grow your own um, food, you could sort your own animals, you could still live in a really nice house, and you could be married to Felicity Kendall. I mean, it was like, <laughs> no wonder they called it The Good Life. <laughs> the Good Life, it's an interesting sort of title, The Good Life. And we're still asking questions of what is the good life. Is it having it all? Is it dropping out? I saw on, uh, Matt sent a link this morning on Twitter uh, to an, an article in today's Independent about this question, what is the good life? And uh, people have done some work, uh, psychologists and sociologists, well, what is the good life? What do you need to actually have the good life? The other thing that happened this week, uh, that happened over the weekend, was that the country lost its AAA security status in terms of finance. For most of us, we go, hmm, that sounds bad. We have no idea what it actually means. But we go, that sounds awful. Um, but what it means is that we're just not as financially secure as we might have been. What's the good life look like? Well, when we've done this, we've suggested that this idea of being holy being a people who are different, a people who are different for the sake of the world. And the book of Leviticus and the Bible does not deal in utopia. It doesn't say, in the ideal world, it would look like this. What Leviticus does is it says, in your world, this is how it should look. In your world, this is how you should live it. In your world, this is what radical obedience to God looks like. And today, we want to look at radical economics, which doesn't sound that interesting, does it? But it's better than it sounds. So let's uh, turn to the 25th chapter of Leviticus. And that's how it starts. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I am going to give you the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. Just hear how he introduces it. Hear how God speaks. When you enter the land, I'm going to give you. It's a gift from me to you. It's not your cleverness. It's not your industriousness. It's a gift I'm giving you. This is how you are to treat the land I've given you. For six years... 
sow your fields. For six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Don't sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Don't reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, the hired worker, the temporary resident who lives amongst you, or the alien, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Listen to this next bit carefully. Count seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. And then sound the uh, trumpet everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Don't sow, don't reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it's a jubilee and it's to be holy for you. Eat only what's taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. The rest of the chapter, which I'm not going to read, the rest of the chapter begins from that point. So what's gone on is that at that point, there's a year of Jubilee, and everybody goes back to their own land. You get your land back. And the rest of the chapter says, it really answers the question, yes, but. Well, how would that work? Well, what about? And the rest of the chapter is the answers to those questions that are obvious questions. Well, what about? How does it work? But... Let's look at the, the bits we have read, just very quickly in a little bit more depth. The first thing to notice is, God says to his people, I want you to have radical land care. I want you to care for your land. This land that you've given, you've been given, is not to be tossed aside, it's not to be worked so intensively, it never rests the land itself is to be given opportunity to breathe. The land has rights. The right of a Sabbath rest. The right for it not to be worked so intensively that you're making it produce all the time. What will this do? It'll mean you have to trust. Because... If you were listening carefully, one of the questions that you ought to ask is, well, fine, you say, God, you say, work six years the land, and then in the seventh, let the land have a break. But what happens in the eighth year? Are you with me? Because it's like, in the seventh year, you can eat what's been grown and still surviving. But what about in the next year? The chapter goes on and addresses that very question. And it will be no surprise to you that have read the Bible, who have read the Bible before what the answer is. What's the answer? God will give you so much in the sixth year, you'll have enough. You'll be able to store it up. 
And some of us have been around and go, hmm, I thought God would say that. Because that doesn't sound like proper economics. This sounds like trust. This sounds like church talk. This doesn't sound like real life. You know that classic phrase? But in the real world. And Leviticus is writing to a people, not giving them a utopian vision. He is saying to them, in the real world, can you actually trust that the God who gave you this can actually supply what you need? No surprise, later you will hear Jesus say exactly the same thing. What's, what are you to do? You who worry about, have you got enough? You who worry about tomorrow, we who get anxious about whether we are secure enough. What does Jesus say? The stuff you'd expect Jesus to say. Seek the kingdom, seek what I want, and I'll supply what you need. Your father will give you what you need. And some of us go, mm, I thought you'd say that. Radical trust, radical land care in a real world. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is radical debt forgiveness. Year of Jubilee. Every 49 years or in the 50th year, everything would revert back to the way it was. Now, in those days, um, if you, well, those days were perhaps not different than us, but some people would do really well. And they, they, would, they would work hard, they would be industrious, they would be blessed, perhaps they would be um, in a position where their profit margin in their rural economy just grew and grew and grew. And that meant that other people might actually be failing. They may not do so good. So I, as a farmer, may struggle, but Arthur might be doing really well. So Arthur would uh, be doing really well. I'd be struggling to feed my family. So what am I going to do? Well, I can actually, what have I got? I've got land. So I'm going to sell some of my land to Arthur. And Arthur will buy my land, and I, my land will reduce, but I've got a little bit of money. And it could be that I would struggle again in another couple of years. Still got a little bit of land. What am I going to do? I'll sell a little bit more to Arthur. And he buys more land because he's doing really well. My land reduces. In the end, if I've sold all my land, because actually, maybe, just to be honest, because I'm lazy or I'm not a good worker, or it doesn't really matter why I've not prospered, what have I got left? I'll come and work for him. He will buy my labor. Leviticus says, every 50 years, Arthur has to give back everything to me or to my family. Hands up if you think that's really fair. <laughs> yes, Matt. You going, no, that's not fair. Neil's rubbish. And Arthur, he's worked really hard. I noticed Arthur didn't put his hand up. <laughs> 
In a world where that doesn't happen, what happens? Well, the gap between Arthur and me grows wider and wider and wider, and it's passed on to my generation and the generation after and the generation after, and he becomes a billionaire, and I'm the underclass. How do you stop it? Jubilee. Now, you may have a million questions now, and I hope you do, because if you, do, if, you, if you don't have any questions, you're not listening. You should have questions now. Oh, that doesn't sound fair. Well, what about, well, how much does he pay, and how do I make sure he didn't take advantage of me, and blah, 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 and the rest of the chapter answers those questions. But what's the good news? The good news is, once a lifetime, you get the chance to start again. Once a lifetime, you get a chance to start again. No matter why you got yourself into the mess, once a lifetime, you get a chance to begin again. Ten years or so ago, we had the Jubilee campaign where Christians and non-Christians got together and said, we want to use this principle to cancel the debt of nations. Because at the moment, all they can do is keep on paying the interest on the amount they owe. They'll never get out of debt. And some countries went, lots of countries signed up for it. <laughs> some countries went through with it, some didn't, because in our world, if you cancel debt, what are you losing? Once a lifetime, everybody got to start again. The debt, the gap between the rich and the poor did not become ever widening. No one was enslaved forever by their past decisions. No one, and no one's family was left owing because someone made some bad decisions. And Arthur's blessing was not predicated on my loss. In other words, God could continue to bless him, and he could continue to be productive. He could continue to be entrepreneurial. But it didn't mean that forever it just meant I was losing. Once a year, I started again. Well, one of the questions that people have when they sort of look at this stuff uh, in Old Testament studies is they ask, well, did it ever happen? And... Um, there's, there's, it's interesting because actually in the narrative of the Old Testament, there's no evidence that they actually practiced this. But it's in the law. But the memory, the memory of it went all the way through the prophets. Now, I've not got time to do the full stream, but I want to show you where it comes up. In Isaiah 58, the memory of the Jubilee is there in the background when Isaiah speaks to God's people and says, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Now, I've, I've left out a couple of verses because of, I wanted to put it on one slide. But I, what Isaiah is saying in 58, you cannot fast and exploit your workers. That's what he actually says. You cannot fast and grind down the oppressed. In other words, you can't do some religious activity 
that will overturn your economic practice. You can't keep people in poverty and think you can come and fast for God's blessing on you. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Isn't it to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Isn't that, God says, isn't that what I'm asking you to do? What's at the back of it? Release them. The year of Jubilee. Release them. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. And you know, probably, that when Jesus speaks his first sermon in Luke's gospel, his first sermon is Jesus preaching that very sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. Most people will suggest that what he means by it's a year of jubilee. Everybody gets to start again. The things that keep people in poverty, Jesus comes and says, we want to overturn What's going on? It's interesting that Luke, you know, and, and those of you who've been around a while, you know that Luke, Luke's gospel deals with the poor and he deals with the marginalized. He deals with women and children because they're marginalized at the time more than any of the other gospels, really. Luke really has a heart for the poor and the marginalized. And I, I've not got time to go through the whole of Luke's gospel, but you could, if you wished, look through Luke's gospel and say, what is he saying about the poor? I think it's interesting, these three, I think it's interesting that it's Luke who includes the Lord's Prayer and as part of the prayer that Jesus prays, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. That's interesting because often what we've done is we've swapped that word for sins. But actually, behind it is that word of debt, the thing you owe. Well, if in the Old Testament, if you wrong someone, you have to pay. And that's where the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth comes from. It has to be fair, but you have to pay. But suddenly, Jesus teaches disciples of his, forgive the debts that are owed to you. Because they've wronged you. In Acts 2, just after the Spirit has been given to the church, the new community are formed. What do they do? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with all the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they met together. And two chapters later, at the end of chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person amongst them. Listen, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, there was no needy person amongst them. 
For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned. He brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. They practiced jubilee. I've been blessed. I'm ready to give it away. Yeah, but... <laughs> How many people have you heard say, yeah, but if everybody did that, nobody would have anything? No, that's not true. <laughs> You'd have less. <laughs> that's all that would mean. You'd have less. And somebody else would have more than they have right now. The Spirit, the grace of God was so powerfully at work amongst them that there were no needy people. Why? Not because somehow God was providing finance and gifts from the ether, but because actually the Spirit of God changed their hearts so much that they lived jubilee. This is the year of God's favor, Jesus said. Where do we land this? I've got three suggestions. I've been reading around, and these came from a guy called Tim Keller, who is a good leader of church and good thinker. But he suggested three ways, and I, I just think they're helpful. There's a call on everyone in the room to be a people who are ready to give relief to those who are in need. In the room, we're all earning different amounts of money. We've got people who are on pensions, who are living in the lap of luxury, and then the rest of us. <laughs> we, don't, we don't own the same. We don't have the same. We don't earn the same. Some of us have known what it means to have had a lot of money and then have no money, and some of us have done it the other way around. We don't earn the same amount of money, but there's not one of us in the room that God does not say to us, actually, when you see the poor, how do you deal with that? Whether that's bringing in food for the, the food parcels, the food stuff that happens there, whether it's giving money to Boaz. I got a threatening text message this morning from Joe Northall saying, if you haven't paid for your ticket for the Boaz relief concert, then I know where you live. And uh, so in the spirit of uh, fear, um, I just want to pay my debt to Joe and say, I, now I'm free. I sense there was no jubilee going to happen there. Whether it's, because, whether it's by giving to Boaz, whether it's by giving to the food parcels, whether it's by giving to the poor, whether it's actually just discerning who needs some help right now and who can I give to anonymously so they may not even know. That is a sign of the evidence of the grace of God on you. You know, sometimes in our tradition of church, when we pray again and we say, oh God, do more, do more, do more. And there's not one of us that would say, oh please, you know, we wouldn't 
Every one of us would pray that. But often it's easy for us to think, God, give us more miracles. God, give us more sense of your presence and all that. But actually, one of the signs of the grace of God is that people became more generous. But there's some of you for whom I think God might be asking more. There's some of you that need to be involved in the development work that enables people to get out of the situations they're in. Some of you might be doing this because of your job, or it might be something that God wants to lay in your heart, that actually you decide, I'm going to get involved, and I'm going to help them. I'm going to get alongside folks. I'm going to help them get out of the situation. I'm not just going to give handouts, but I'm going to be involved in trade, or I'm going to be involved in development, or I'm going to be involved in work that enables people to get out of their situation. It can be really simple. There's an organization called Kiva, K-I-V-A. And they allow you to lend really small amounts of money, 25 pounds, as little as that. And they loan it to people in the majority world who can begin to do some work that gets them out of a trap of poverty and they repay the loan. It's not giving, but it's actually enabling development to begin. That's a really basic level. And then it gets more complicated the more you get involved. But then the other thing is there's some people I think are called to reform. To be the voice that cries out for the poor and says, we're going to get to the root of what causes it and we want some reform to happen. And I'm... I was thinking about where I wanted this to go, really. And I, I do get this sense in me. One or two of you should go into politics to actually make this work. This is my ministry call this morning. We're gonna, <laughs> if you'd like to come to the front. It, I, I mean it. You see, those of us who give relief aid from the sides doesn't change the system. And the system's complicated and it's not simple and it's not easy and no one, and I really wouldn't want to be heard as thinking it's easy to change. But some people need to be on the inside to change things. And some of you, I think, God would say, get involved and make a difference from the inside, not just from the outside. Well, I offer you that, and I do actually say it with certain tentativeness, but I do actually feel it's a word for some of you. I mean that. For all of us, we do it because of Jesus. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he's writing about the relationship between churches across the world He's writing to churches who do have, and he's encouraging those churches to give to the churches that don't have. And he explains, my purpose is not that you will have nothing and they will have everything. It's that actually, he says, that there might be equality. And in the middle of it, he reminds you of Jesus. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... 
for your sake, he became poor. So that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty, might become rich. We follow the one who gave up status. Who gave up what he had for the sake of those who have nothing. And that's the Lord you're following. Jesus, the one who came and stood in a Nazareth synagogue and said, the year of God's favor, the year of Jubilee is here because I'm here. Because now you don't need to wait a whole lifetime to start again. But actually, it happens now, for I'm here. The Spirit who comes on the church and moves so powerfully in their hearts that there's no needy people amongst them because people give the year of Jubilee. In one sense, not caring why people got into a mess in the first place, but simply saying, actually, it's part of the grace of God. In a book called Leviticus, which deals with the whole of life, deals with sacrifices that we need to come to a holy God. It deals with being priests for the sake of the world. It deals with atonement and the sin that we struggle with, that deals with food, that deals with uh, health, that deals with sex, that deals with money, that deals with every area of our life for those of us who call ourselves disciples. 